0: Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, and blessings, and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist
1: Hello, this is Leslie, and you listen to The Gist of Freedom, and today we have a very special show. We are simulcasting with um, Grandma Ellen out of New York, out of Brooklyn, East New York. Uh, she should be on the line. Uh, you can listen to her show, and this broadcast at 90.5 in New York City. And I want to make sure, is Grandma Ellen on the line? No. Okay. No, this is waiting? not
2: Grandma Ellen.
1: Okay. We have a few callers on the line. And do we have my co-host on the line? Uh, is Mr. Zion Dicoto on the line?
3: Yeah, I'm here. I'm here. I'm not sure if you he can hear me.
1: I got you. I can hear you loud and clear. And do we have Mr. Donald Brown on the line?
4: Yes, I'm here.
1: Okay, and do we have your special guest, our Honorable Senator Mr. Owens, Reverend Owens. Is he on the line?
2: I'm here, thank you, but it's not Reverend. Okay. Descendants of Bill Owens.
1: Okay, Senator Bill Owens, okay. All right. Thank you. So, Mr. Zion Dakota, he's 17 years old. He is uh, one of the newest host on the Gist of Freedom, and I think we just uh, have Grandma Ellen. Are you on the line?
5: Yes, I am.
1: Okay, Grandma Ellen, please take over. I introduced that. This is a simulcast being broadcast on 90.5 in Brooklyn, East New York. You can yes. also listen to our Grandma Ellen's show on Tanlon Radio. That's T-A-N-D-L com, And I'm going to yes. hand over to Mike. To you, Grandma Ellen.
5: Uh, yes, it's good to be here, and I'm glad to speak to everyone. And um, this is actually we have tacky talk from 12 to 2, so the troops are split up because we didn't know he was coming on. But hopefully we will have Nellie on. And um, I just had a email. That one of my young men, you know, just lost his father, so I don't think he will, you know. That's the young man that lives on the campus of um, of of um, Fordham. So okay. we're gonna make something right. out of that, and we're gonna make up for him because he is just remarkable, and we're gonna send our love. And I did just send an email. And I hope some of them got it. And I hope maybe um, Delsa Best would be on. Delsa is the, she comes on Today's Woman on Wednesdays from 7 to 9. And she does mostly, she speaks about life. She does community therapy. Okay. Doctor?
1: All right, Grandma Ellen, we have. I'm the doing Honorable good. How are you Senator doing? That, uh, we have the signature on the line, uh? and we want to get him on. So, Zion, would you do yeah. the introduction? Yes.
3: What? Go ahead, Zion. I'm sorry. I'm coming. I'm coming. Bear with me. Bear okay. with me. Okay. Uh huh. All right. Well, um, oh, on the okay. line here, we have. I apologize. I'm coming. Okay. You know, Technology acting up and everything. You know um, how it goes. You, you think it will
2: still go out?
3: No. We so don't, we here don't. we have um, the Honorable, am I with Donald Brown? Yeah, this is he. And you have... Um, yes, and Dr. he's a Goodwill Ambassador. He's a humanitarian. Uh, no, We have Bill...
1: Wait, wait, wait. We have Bill Owens. I'll call you uh, in a William few minutes. Okay.
3: okay. Okay. Bye. All
1: right. Hello? We have Senator... Okay, Senator Owens, are you on the line?
2: Yes, ma'am. How are you? Okay, great. It's so good good to hear your voice.
3: Senator Owens, hi, evening. Nice to speak to you.
2: Hello. It's so good meeting all of you on this uh, snowy day. Yes. Thank you. I'm just uh, following your lead.
3: All right, so I'm not sure, Leslie, at your direction, if you want to jump into the discussion about um, Mr. George Edwin Taylor.
1: Right, start off.
3: Yes, well, um, we found an article um, from NPR, and it was discussing Mr. George Edwin Taylor. And in 1904, he's often forgotten, um, he ran for president as the candidate for the National Negro Liberty Party, sometimes known as the National Liberty Party. So although many people consider Shirley Chisholm, who ran for president back in 1972 – As the first African-American candidate to run for president, that was actually not true. It turns out George Edwin Taylor ran way earlier in the century before her, and we know that there were many other attempts at the presidency from people within our community, such as Jesse Jackson. And later on, we know President Obama, of course, a successful campaign. So with Mr. George Edwin Taylor, he was born the son of a slave. He was a journalist by trade who lived in Iowa, and he gained distinction. And in 1904, 36 states sent representatives to the Liberty Party convention, and. According to the New York Times, the party denounced the Democrats' disenfranchisement of black Americans, and it also questioned Theodore Roosevelt's fidelity to African Americans, and it stood for unqualified enforcement of the Constitution, such as reparations for slaves and independence for the Philippines. And one one thing that Leslie and I were discussing um, earlier before the broadcast is that Mr. Edwin Taylor did not receive too much of a formal education. He was a self-educated man, self-taught. We saw this in many other cases. I think George Washington Carver was also a self-taught man in addition to Frederick Douglass. So we were saying um, in terms that not to denounce formal education, but it does not take formal education to – um, drive a passion within you to, to to advance yourself and advance your community. So we just wanted to lead a discussion on that, as in, um, what do you know about Mr. Taylor or past presidential uh, candidacies by African Americans, and how come President Barack Obama's campaign was the most successful. So I just want to have some people jump in here. Hope I'm not throwing out too many questions. So if you want to just start off with one topic. Hello.
4: I just have a question. Could you repeat the source?
3: Um, NPR, National Public Radio. Okay. And you also reference
4: the New York Times article. You know the date of that? E-
3: yes. I'm seeing December third, two thousand and fifteen. Okay. Uh, right. So uh, my question was: um, Does anyone Has anyone here ever heard of uh, Mr. Edwin Taylor before? Not, Actually, you
2: know. I have not.
3: So we learn something new every day. He was a yes, self-taught man, a journalist by trade, and he worked with the National Negro Liberty Party, also known as the National Liberty Party, <laughs> and he was was making an attempt for the presidency of the United States. Now, he didn't receive too many votes, and he's not well-known, and many people always assume that Shirley Chisholm back in 1972 was the first to have run for president.
4: So, was that party he ran on my brother was that uh a, a black party?
3: Yes, um, it had a lot of African American support toward the party,
4: okay, so it really was the first black political party organized in this country in a structured way. what you're saying,
3: yes, and yeah, uh, you can look it up now as we speak to just throw in some more information into this, and I'll also try and do that as we're on as we're on here.
4: Uh, this is great information unfolding. I'm grateful for you sharing this, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and uh, I understand you're 17, so you sixteen, and, 16. You, you, How? Old? Sixteen. Sixteen. Oh, that's that's great, my brother. I commend you for that and in your interest in the history.
0: So I, I, I think as
4: well. we're talking about first, and I'm going to just you know I'm sure the senator can weave into it. I don't know what the time is. I'd just like to say, and and this is the first time we're hearing of this brother being the first uh, presidential nominee from a major party, Uh, go back to 1904. I'm going to fast forward that to Senator Owens being the first uh, African American to be elected as state senator in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and bring him on and let him share that first history and weave it into maybe the first we talked about in, in, in current reality to your point, of Barack Obama and what
3: that all means. So, Senator that? Owens, wanted to welcome you. I wanted you to just jump into the conversation and, and go off some of the prompts that uh, our previous guest just stated. Well, uh,
2: let me say thank you very much for allowing me to be on, and Donald Brown, I thank you very much for inviting me and letting me know about this program. Mm-hmm. I am pleased, but I, I do want to say that... Um, i grew up in alabama i uh... moved to massachusetts when i was uh, about fifteen years old and um i got elected got a- in interested in politics i was interested in politics since i was very young but in coming to massachusetts i began to learn a lot about the history of massachusetts and of course about the elected officials uh... in massachusetts um, Massachusetts, as you are probably aware, was one of the leaders in the slave trade. Uh, but they also, to their credit, were the first to exit from the slave trade. However, in looking at all of it in 2020 hindsight, uh, Massachusetts people provided a great deal of money uh, in that instance, and uh, they were supporters of uh, of of the slave trade, actually, and those are kind of some of the just points, and I'm skipping all over the place that we should probably just remember. Uh, Edward Brooke uh, became the first uh, United States senator since Reconstruction, and I served and became the first uh, black person to serve in the uh, Massachusetts State Senate since its history. And Massachusetts, of course, is supposed to be one of the more very liberal states, but I can tell you that um, with all of the fanfare that is across the country about its liberal uh, attitude, disposition, and programs, um, Massachusetts... uh, was not even willing to um, create a district where a black could be rep, uh, represented. Uh, the Democratic Party actually—it um, was a—it was a, it was a, a Republican uh, governor who told the legislature, which was primarily Democratic, uh, that um, he would not sign any legislation that did not have a district where a black could get elected. And he went on to say that um, if you do this and I'm going to veto it, and if you have enough votes to override my veto, uh, he would take it further. Uh, However, it just happened that there were just enough votes plus one to sustain a gubernatorial veto, and he vetoed three, four, five uh, different bills that uh, were established uh, to create the district. And, of course, uh, I was in the House of Representatives at that time. I had only served one term in the House, but when the Senate district was created, um, I uh, decided to run, and I became the first black person uh, to serve in that district. Now, there are a lot of programs that we were able to push through, but uh, we can talk about that whenever you're ready to do
1: so. Okay, I'm going to have to jump in here and ask you a question, um, Senator, because you know this is this is an educational program. We're trying to educate our listeners. Uh, tell us about what is the difference between the House of Representatives and uh, the, the Congress, and tell us a little bit about the makeup of of our body.
2: Okay, our um, at the state level you have some some states have what they call a bicameral system which means that the house and the senate are all in one chamber uh the other one is however you have a separate chamber for the house and a separate chamber for the senate and in order for legislation to become law you have to get a, a majority support from both branches of that uh, government, whether it's the House of Representatives or the Senate. In Massachusetts, we have a, um, a a separate House and a separate Senate chamber. And in order to get legislation passed, it has to pass, pass at least by one vote uh, in order to get passed to go to the governor. And then, of course, you need the governor's signature to make it into law if you do not get the governor's signature and if he or she vetoes it, then you have to have enough two-thirds to override that veto. And if you can't get the two-thirds, of course it will die uh, of a uh, of natural causes. Uh, hmm. And that's what happens with a lot of legislation. However, uh, what we have found in the... Um, legislature uh since president obama has been uh, president uh very few pieces of legislation have been passed between bo- uh, between both branches the house and the senate and that he would sign and ultimately become law what we've been able to see though is the um the the president using the authority of the presidency to um, push not legislation but because of the presidential authority and administrative ability he's been able to push some pieces of law that become law only because after being challenged it is approved to be uh, legal by the uh, Supreme Court so once we uh, look at the legislature the court system and the administration we should have all three uh, branches of government uh in 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 our grasp and we as a people of uh african descent uh generally have not been able to get a majority but in the south we were we have districts that are majority, and they have uh, been able to elect a few people in different states across the country. But as I mentioned to you, Massachusetts is one of those that um, we did not have uh, that many black people in Massachusetts, and it was very difficult to create a district where uh, blacks were contiguous because what they did is they would take maybe a third or a fourth of the people out of a district that could be contiguous to a black community put it in a white district and then take Mm -hmm. right around that and gerrymander and take Mm -hmm. a percentage from Mm -hmm. another district so that we would never be able to have uh, the number of votes that majority that we needed in order to elect our own representation. Let's go uh, back to
1: the, uh, uh, Senator Owens, let's go back to the history. And before I ask this question and hand it back over to Donald Brown and Zion, I want to let the listeners know that I do see you on the line 718 495, 718 938, 347 228, and 646 593. We're going to get to you within the next five minutes. But before we do that, Zion and Donald, we always hear the term that the three fifth clause stated that we were less. Than humans, we're only three fifths of a person. Could you explain the balance of power and why the three clause, as Frederick Douglass would say, was one of the most powerful anti-slavery clauses, Senator?
2: Uh, Dan, are you talking to me or Donald?
1: Yes, yes, Senator. Okay, talking to you.
2: Uh, well, first of all, um, the three fifths clause is there is no guarantee that i'm aware of in the constitution that guarantees that we have the right to vote
0: mm.
2: but if you have three-fifths of a person that person can be denied the right to vote because you are not a whole person And that's what the um, legislature and the government did when they made they they put in there that we were three fifths of a person. So, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: but after Lyndon Johnson came to power and the Voting Rights Bill was put in place, that gave legal authority to make sure that every Person would have the right to vote regardless of the age, the color, and of course within a certain age group.
1: Okay, all right, um, Zion or Donald, you want to jump in?
3: Yes, um, that was an interesting conversation there. To hear about the, the the districting issue and of course with the it, Massachusetts being a, a mostly liberal state or a democratic state it was interesting that it took a Republican governor to take some sort of action to, to form a district for African Americans because we know throughout history or just socially um, members of the black community tend to vote democratic so it's interesting to hear that history aspect come into light
2: Uh, That is also true, but I want you to know that even with the Republican governor, there were fewer Republicans in the House of Representatives and Mm -hmm. the Senate than there were Democrats. Yeah. Uh, And in order to make it happen, the Black Caucus, which was formed uh, in uh, 1972, we own, That was the first time that we had five black people elected to the House of Representatives, but we had no senator. We mm-hmm. were able to form a coalition with Republicans, liberals, so-called white liberals, and blacks. And could those you name were those, those five the people? I'm sorry. I could beg you, your pardon? Could, could you name yeah, those sure. five? Uh, that was... Uh, Representative Doris Bonte, uh, Representative Royal Bowling Sr., Representative Royal Bowling Jr., Representative Mel King, and at that time uh, Representative Bill Owens. We were the five that formed the Legislative Black Caucus in Massachusetts, and we were able to then form a coalition with uh, Republicans and white liberals and we were able to sustain a gubernatorial veto. Um, so that's how we were able to get work done, more through sustaining uh, vetoes that we were able to work with uh, the sitting governor who happened to be Republican um, than being able to get legislation that was uh, germane to our advancement um Uh, get it through the the legislature. Uh, However, later on, uh, as we stayed there and began to fight and was able to uh, prevent certain pieces of legislation from being passed, uh, we began to get some cooperation from members of the House and the Senate.
3: And, um, Senator, I just want to jump in here um, just to throw in a little fun fact. Um, the district of Roxbury in Boston was also very important in the abolitionist movement within the city of Boston, and it was also formerly the home of Malcolm X. So I wanted to ask you particularly, what do you know about um, you know, the Roxbury district in Massachusetts?
2: Well, I know a lot about Roxbury. Uh, Roxbury... Well, first of all, Roxbury was the major city. Boston became a Boston, and other parts became a part of Roxbury. Mm-hmm. Um, and what happened is, uh, let me go back a little bit to uh, Ed Brook. Yeah, Ed, Ed Brook lived in Roxbury. Actually, he lived for a while, right across the street from where I lived. We lived both lived on uh, Crawford Street.
0: Uh-huh.
2: Um, and, of course, when he got elected, I think he moved to the Newton area uh, with his family. Uh, but he had been very active in the Roxbury community, and he was a Republican. Uh, and as you probably recall, uh, most black people during the early periods were republicans because yeah. it was seemingly the republicans that uh made the difference including starting with lincoln uh who made a big difference in our lives so that was very significant
3: uh later yeah.
2: we began to um gravitate to the democratic party because
3: yeah i was Democrats just about to came, ask you about that
2: yeah because the Democrats seemed to have been more sensitive there was a big transition that went on. And so the Republicans became more conservative, the Democrats became more uh progressive and liberal and uh therefore we were uh we began to make that move forward and of course uh during the Roosevelt period, uh A Philip Randolph <clears throat> You, you, during the World War II, let me back up and put it that way. Mm-hmm. During World War II, white men had pretty much all of the government jobs. Pretty much. A. Philip Randolph had put together the Pullman car porters, which was on the trains, as you are probably aware. And when... White men went to war. Black men didn't get those jobs. Yeah. Even when they came home uh, from the service, the white women got those jobs. And A. Philip Randolph went to President Roosevelt and said to him, Mr. President, you must give my men, he stated, jobs in the... Mm -hmm. um, in the federal installations. Roosevelt said he would not take that risk. A. Philip Randolph, being the statuesque person that he is, uh, was stood up, put on his hat, looked Roosevelt straight in the eye, <laughs> and he said, Mr. President, if you don't give my men jobs, I'm going to march 100,000 on the White House. Within two weeks, Roosevelt signed an executive order that would allow black men to go into certain federal installations Okay. and, and get jobs. So that was much of the beginning, and as you are probably aware, Eleanor Roosevelt was outstanding in her quest uh, for equality. She was a good friend of Mary McLeod Bethune, uh, which ended up getting the bethune Cookman um college in uh Florida. Uh she uh was instrumental in assisting uh black men in the uh, Tuskegee um airmen uh getting going. In fact, no when she decided she was going up in a flight with them I mean, the rest of Congress and others really got angry with her, but Uh she did it anyway. And therefore, that put more attention on the black airmen, and they became one of the greatest assets uh, to the American victory uh, during that period.
3: And, Senator, not to cut you off here, but um, I wanted to thank you for that uh, wonderful story, and it was good to hear the the little back history with eleanor roosevelt and um how african-americans sort of transition it was interesting to learn from voting republican to democratic now before we move into the portion of the program where we take calls because i know um, we see the callers on the line as miss just said earlier on and we're going to come to you all i wanted to know if mr donald brown was on the line do you have anything to add donald brown on the line
2: you, Donald might have lost you or you might have lost him. I'm not sure. Yeah, but, uh, it
3: seems so. I'm in um, Boston.
2: Donald is in New York.
3: So before we move into the the portion of the program where we take calls, I just wanted to ask you what bill um, in your career as a senator are were you the most proud of, should I say?
2: I happened among, I I found many many pieces of legislation and was able to get a number of pieces of legislation through. But you asked me about the one that I was most proud of. I did not get it through. It is still not law in any state in the United States. But I am most proud of being the first black person or the first legislator to since Reconstruction,
0: Mm -hmm. to
2: present a bill calling for reparations. That is my pride and joy. And And, um, while while it has not become law
0: anywhere uh, uh, in the
2: country, it is still floating around, and I was able to form many coalitions around the world, actually, around the issue of reparations, including uh, uh, Nigeria and several other uh, African nations uh, who are willing and ready to fight for reparations, also with the Caribbeans. Because uh, when I was in Nigeria uh, with Chief MKO Abiola around the issue of reparations, there was a a gentleman from Jamaica there, uh, Dudley Thompson, who Mm -hmm. was part of the strategy that we had used to go to the world court on the issue of reparations. However, Abiola, Chief Abiola, and you should write him and look him up, is one of the great men of our time.
0: Abiola
2: ran for president of Nigeria and won. The election was annulled by the sitting president, Ibrahim uh, Babagida. Okay, that took away the sting that mm-hmm. we had because of Abiola's power, his wealth, etc., and his base of knowledge of Africa, because mm-hmm. we were intending to get the African nations across the board to participate in the uh, in, in, in the suit that we were going to go forward with. But that kind of killed it when uh, the election was annulled, Abiola was placed in jail, and the election uh, did not go forward to allow him to take his seat. But it was also during the same time that Nelson Mandela was being sworn in uh, uh, just during that period as uh, president of uh, South Africa.
3: Okay. Um, I just wanted to come in and say the caller's number um, I have the beginning numbers here 718495 and then caller number 718938 your lines are open so if you want to jump in and come into the conversation that's caller number 718495 also caller number 718938 line is open if you want to jump into the conversation
5: yes i have a question
3: uh-huh come in
5: um as you say reparations i am Solely for reparations. Yes, but, I was
3: about to jump into that 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 topic of discussion. Thank you for, I for introducing. I just
5: want to say that um, when it comes to reparations, you know, most people say things like, um, "We can't get reparations because." But the point is that it, it seems like every part of history, and from slavery, from everywhere that I've. You know, heard or read, the end of it always has to be reparations. You know, compensation. Sure. But the point is that um, we're in New York City, you know, and even when I think of going through, you know, when I think of going through um, Ellis Island and, you know, through the Statue of Liberty and where it is, we're called, um, Oh, what do you call that, Um, un- whatever immigrants, okay? Mm-hmm. Oh, involuntary immigrants. Now that, to me, is reparations, and that is what the young people have been fighting, you know, arguing for for years. I'm 75, and most people were telling them of color, were saying, you know, you'll never get that. And I believe that that is, that, involuntary you know involuntary whatever I believe that that is against the law just like the the young people said that is kidnapping
0: Mm
2: -hmm. I agree with you and uh, it is kidnapping Uh, we're the only uh, non-immigrants in the United States of America Uh, we did not immigrate here we were forced into slavery by being brought here from the outside but what we need to remember and many of us don't think of it this way we literally built this country literally we made millionaires and billionaires and and probably even trillionaires because think think about this you have a business and you employ 10 people and you don't have to pay them for a year, how much money do you think you'll make? If you don't have to pay them for 10 years or 100 years, that's how this country has benefited off the slavery and the slave trade. In addition to that, depending on whether it's Lerone Bennett or some other writer, in the Middle Passage alone, we lost as many as 150 million people. We cannot afford to let it die or let it go away. And we're not going to get it unless we make a determination in our minds that we are going to
5: get it. And before, that we are entitled to it. And um, before the, we,
3: the conversation continues here, I just want to um, urge like any of the callers on the line to turn down the computers or any nearby technology down because we want to avoid feedback on the line as we come to the conversation. And I also want to let a uh, caller whose number begins in 646 646 that uh, you are on the line as well. You're open to come into the conversation. So, um, le- well, now that, let's jump back into the reparations conversation. And, um, you know, some people say wh- when it comes to reparations, it's not going to help anything, and we, we, we shouldn't be waiting to be handed something by them. And others say, I mean, it's not even about whether or not reparations is going to to fix a lot of the issues. It's more about the principle of it because if you're going to award other groups, such as Native Americans, who have endured your blunt of trauma, um, their reparations in a sort, then why haven't we been awarded anything? The principle of it. So, I wanted to to get your take on why do you think, you know. Um, what 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 is reparations mostly an issue of, and what do you think the result of uh, reparations is going to be? Because I know that this has been a, an ongoing conversation for a long time. Well,
2: if I and, if I may, yeah, mm-hmm. I don't think that we should compare the African American experience with the Native American experience.
3: Yeah, I agree with you on that one
2: uh, oh. because they owned this land yeah and this land was taken away from them and then it was used in a dilatory fashion to bring in african-americans so and even while we were being taught in school we were taught that the native americans were hostile people well if somebody invaded your home and wanting to push you around or kill you i think you would be hostile too so that's one of the reasons but let's go beyond that yeah um the united states of america contributes to the state of israel a lot of money every year and they contribute that money primarily that maintains their uh, army and security uh, system. Um, In the creation of the state of Israel, the U.S. gave, I forget the exact number right now, but well over a billion dollars just for the immediate uh, creation Of the state of Israel, and I'm saying a billion, it might have been two or three billion. Uh, And and they paid reparations to Jews who, for whatever reason, had been displaced by Hitler. And their relations with Israel has cost them a lot in the future. It has cost a lot of money. But I I would also say that here we are, and that's not to diminish the Jews. However, we have not used the money that we give to the state of Israel to create some levity and parity over in uh, Palestine we may may disagree over some of this, but if you have a Palestinian state right next to Israel, then they both should have some equality among themselves. That's only reasonable, but if one is dominant and being supported by yours and my taxes, to me, that's not reasonable
3: and should not be
2: occurring the way that it is. We have, the United States has paid uh, reparations to Japan. They brought the Japanese and put them in a camp, et cetera, et cetera, and they paid X amount of dollars uh, to each of them that were put into that uh, situation. I'm not trying to juxtapose what the U.S. has done with other people and other nations, but in actuality, it is about us. It's about us. It's about not just the United States, but the world, Europeans all over the world took advantage of Africans and put them in their countries. And that's why, look it, you they ended up killing Qaddafi. Some people thought Qaddafi, I mean, you get you listen to the media, the U.S. press, and you get all these notions about Qaddafi and other uh, leaders. Qaddafi mm-hmm. was bringing together the African nations to put together an African union, similar to what the European Union is. Uh So if the Europeans have a union, why shouldn't the Africans have a union? Uh You see? Why shouldn't the African nations be able to come together? And I will tell you in my mind, more than any other reason, it was to keep the African nations separated. That's why the invasion, and of course to take over the oil and all of the other benefits. Mm-hmm. And as I speak to you, I was supposed to be in Nigeria. Yeah. Speaking to the advancement of uh, of, of um, democracy in Nigeria. And, and I really wanted to do that.
3: But I, and I wanted to, to a... jump in and um sorry to, uh, to cut you off there. Um, well I had two more topics that I wanted to get to within the context of reparation and and that oh, is do. the situation in Flint, Michigan. We know the whole issue with um, water water supply being tainted, I believe. And um, so I wanted to ask you, is that a if you're familiar with that situation, is that a is that within itself a case of reparations? Uh. Uh-huh.
2: Let me just say, if there's someone else who would like to speak to that, I'd be very happy to acquiesce uh, because I know there are a number of people on the line. Yeah. Uh, So I want to give someone else an opportunity to
3: speak as well. Anybody else there, jump into the conversation. Just a freedom, and we're 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 trying to get all our ideas out there. It's educational programming, and we want to spread the word so if there's anybody else on the line could you please jump into the conversation. feel free so it, on, anyway uh the so they question come in I'll go back to you and ask you about the situation in Flint
2: okay, uh, the situation in Flint, as far as I'm concerned, was um a predatory uh assault on poor people. Black or white, there's still poor people who don't have many alternatives and may not have any alternatives. Uh should there be reparations? Absolutely. In my mind, should the governor be gone? Absolutely. Uh, Should the people there be um, – there are health issues involved here, many health issues. And some of these young people may not begin to manifest some of the health issues that exist uh, for years to come. But the state should be responsible for taking care of their health just based on that and that could be a part of the reparations but in addition to that it would be up to um the legislature and the city the mayor the and the city council as well to uh make some determinations about what that uh reparations fee should look like but mm-hmm. most important it should be housing and health you see because if obviously the structure of housing had a lot to do with the the way the rust was going through the pipes for instance uh and the lead that was in the water so all i'm saying is i don't know all of the particulars i just know generally what is going on there so it would be my opinion that um there should clearly be an issue of reparations uh, brought to bear.
3: Well, thank you for your input on that um, topic, because I know Flint has been a large uh, subject within the media for the past couple of days. And um, now um, I'm getting a, a word here. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with this, in light of the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. Um, Are you familiar with that? Yes, I am. And so, I mean, is this going to lead African Americans to not trust the government? Um, What what is your take on that? (laughs) I
2: think that uh, in large measure, African Americans don't trust the government. Mm -hmm. uh, Because the government generally does not seem to take into account the needs of uh, African people. Uh, for instance, let's look at job opportunities.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, in Massachusetts, there was never a summer jobs program just for students who were going to school. And here it is. I mean, look at uh, this. I went into office. In 1972, which was quite some time ago, uh, comparatively. But all these years, there was never a jobs program for young people in Massachusetts. But if you had your family had their own business or they were a part of a corporate structure, all the white kids got jobs. Black kids didn't get them. So we did get through a youth summer jobs program while kids were out of school. Uh and I think that kind of thing is significant, but it is it doesn't it has a value, but it's not a cure-all. And mm. I think we need to be looking at what at longevity, but in the meantime we can look at short-term uh fixes, and that's one of the things. the other one is uh housing um, the housing condition is poor generally yeah. in in black communities um, Black folks cannot in large measure get mortgages even to buy a house, and if they can, they don't have the money to support that. So you're in that kind of a dilemma all over again.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, you need health care. Health care is most significantly, and I uh, I will just tell you this, I lived in Nigeria for a couple of years, and when I came back, I was very ill, including having malaria, and I ended up having what is called a Whipple surgery which is part of my stomach, part of my intestine, part of my half of my pancreas, and my gallbladder are gone. Wow. However, I looked at the situation around me and I said, oh, wow. Black men, I see them hanging out on the street every day, but they won't go to the doctor. And most of them don't have insurance, and most of them probably don't know how to access the system. So I established a program called Health Education and Learning for Black Males, took it to the University of Massachusetts. They bought it. They said okay, and we ran that program for about 12 years. Um, I may comment about that because health care is so critical. Black men tend to die five years earlier than their counterparts,
0: Mm -hmm.
2: whether it's through prostate cancer problems or heart disease or any other kind of disease, cancer, all of that. If you compare them with their counterparts, they will probably die at least five years earlier uh, than those
0: counterparts.
3: Interesting so we need to, to note that information. Sorry, and um, just to pass on a last opportunity to any of the callers who may be on the line. Um, caller number seven one eight four nine five. If you're on the line, I would like you to jump into the conversation. Are you there? Um. Yes. Yes. I just... Um. Okay. So we we've. We've heard a lot. Um, We've talked about health care, housing, gentrification, and the the, the poor door. So I wanted to speak to you about your your views, your ideas, your knowledge on that situation that the senator was just talking about. He was bringing up good points about um, the housing situation in African-American communities, particularly gentrification. We're seeing this spread like wildfire, especially in Brooklyn, New York. Um, I, I wanted to know if you had a take on that.
5: Um, yes, but my most um the most important issue that I feel that we have is reparations, because yeah. as I'm just blessed to um we're volunteers, but we're blessed to work with um Dr. Claude Alexander and Dr DeGruy and dr Leonard Jeffries, people like that that tell us to continue to. You know, air these tapes for people, you know, on the station, especially in East New York, places like that. And when we put these out, people, you know, they call and say things like, I didn't know that. And I have to say, I didn't know that. We really don't know our history, especially as he tells us about secrets and lies and about reparations being something that, We should have our own banks, our own education, and our own banks would be a place where our own young people can borrow money to start their own businesses and, you know, things like that. Especially in light
3: of the the, the syphilis um, conspiracy that we were speaking about earlier and um, the situation in Flint, Michigan. Um, you know, the call for distrust of the government grows there, and the call for reparations grows wider as we see issues like this. So, I mean, this is a, a topic that has been going on in the past and is still relevant today. Okay. Hello. I wanted to, so um yeah continue what um the points that you were bringing across on on those topics such as. Um, reparations, housing, gentrification. Please jump in.
2: Okay, let me then uh, go go back a little bit. Um, education should be free.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: President Obama has said he wants education to be free through community colleges, and I think that's extremely important because. It gives us an opportunity in several ways. One, to learn how to do research. Two, to learn and uh, uh, get involved in the areas of socialization. And three, to learn uh, how to adjust and how to uh, prepare ourselves for whatever job opportunities that we want to participate going forward. Uh, Those are all of the things that we need as a people. We need a strong educational base and a strong educational background. I grew up in Alabama. I had the best teachers in the whole wide world. And I'll tell you, it was done out of love. The teachers loved us. Then I came to Boston. I was 15 years old. I didn't have a single black teacher. I had all white teachers, and I didn't know what the hell they were talking about half of the time, to be honest with you. I got here. I finished 10th grade in Alabama. I had all black teachers, had a black administrator, and I got here, no black teacher, no black counselor, no black administrator, and... I was kind of lost for a period of time. But because of my skills at adjustment, I was able to adjust and uh, go forward from there. But education, we can't allow our school system to be used as a learning ground for young white teachers who want to come in and learn how to teach you see, and then once they learn how to teach, they go back to where their people are and begin the teaching process.
3: But, but I didn't even know that happened. was a practice. You learned something new every I, day. I beg
2: your pardon?
3: I said I didn't even know that was a uh, practice. You learned something new every day.
2: It happens all the time.
3: Mm-hmm. Did mm-hmm. any
2: of you read uh, the book by Jonathan Kozal called Death at an Early Age?
1: No. No, okay. but... Um uh give us the name again one more time so we can write it down.
2: Death at an Early Age by Jonathan Kozol.
1: Now, if you could rewrite history as far as the civil rights movement and the uh, Brown versus Board of Education, and hearing what you just said, what would you do differently?
2: I don't I hadn't thought about that, but I don't know that I would do a great deal differently. Uh, but I I would n I would be careful about integrating the school so called. Um, if we had any measure because we don't have any measure of control in most of those instances. Uh-huh. And the reason I mentioned Jonathan Kozal and death at an early age is because my children went there to that what is called the Gibson School. But the parents got so infuriated with the way it was being run that we decided to take over the school. We went in and took over the school and told the principal that she couldn't run that school anymore, that we, parents were going to run. We told the teachers if they wanted to stay, they could stay, but they'd be under new administration. We did that. Now, it was more of a demonstration, but it began to raise levels of consciousness of black people all over the city of Boston and in other places because people think they send their children to school and they're going to be educated. But uh, if you remember the so-called desegregation in Boston, it was horrendous. It was horrendous. The mayor of the city was supposed to be a liberal guy, but he allowed the Roar people or the conservatives to have meetings on Beacon Street in a publicly owned facility. But when we decided to have a march down Boylston Street, he said no. Because the business community didn't want that to to happen. That was basically the reason. But when confronted, and he said, the police out there with horses and everything said, you're not going down Boston Street. The people said, Bill, what do we do? I said, we're going down Boston Street at any cost. Then they rode horses up into the crowd.
1: uh, Senator, what year did this take place
2: Uh, when you took over the school? 19, uh, oh, that was in 68. We took over the school, the the Gibson School in 68. We took it over. But the demonstration that I was talking about took place in 74, Mm
0: -hmm. you see?
2: So it is an everlasting problem that we face. But but anyway, the long and the short of it, they ran horses up into the crowd. And later on, I just said, John Boone was the commissioner of corrections here. I said, John Boone, take the women and children down Boylston Street and all black men who want to stand here with me because we're going down Boylston Street at any cost. Well, when they took the women and children down and the police knew they were confronted with angry black men, they let us go walk down Boston Street.
1: Wow, okay. you, this history is so powerful. Two questions: Are you familiar with David Walker from the slave era?
2: i just a little bit, yes. And okay, then we'll skip to be that
1: question. Reminded. Okay, um, he was he was like a Malcolm X of the era. He wrote a pamphlet stating that black men need to take up arms, and you know Boston at the time was a free. Free um, state, and he wrote a pamphlet, and he ended up missing. And but he used the navy, the um, the, uh, the ships to to ship all of his pamphlets all over the south, and he uh-huh. encouraged uh, slavery votes. So he's one of the baddest men of the era, and of course um, he ended up missing, and nobody knows what happened to him. But the other and um both of you, you
3: uh, before, not to cut you off, before um, we continue the conversation, I'd just like to say um, it was interesting talking to you both. It was an educational programming, and it was really an hour of um, stimulating discussion when it comes to what's happening in our community and what has happened. And I would like to thank you, Senator, for uh, taking the time to to talk to us here on the just the freedom. But uh, that's my hour of the program, and uh, it's my second week, and I'm just uh, getting into the gears of things, but it's seeming to go well so far, and I want to turn it over to you, Miss Leslie just and continue the conversation. It's going well.
1: Thank you so much, Zion. I appreciate you jumping in, and I can't wait to have you back on next week. But, um, I can't wait to get this. Great. One last question, Senator. When you look at all of the different Um, Groups, organizations Black Lives Matter Black Lives Matter And you see the Ferguson kids out there With gas masks on And using milk as a way To keep from getting the um, gas in their eyes The tear gas And you see various protests Throughout the nation With young people And they're they're joining across the world With other people In Brazil Uh, For instance What Do you see it as the future, and do you see any parallels between what's going on today with the young people that's coming up and the people like yourselves who are shutting down schools in the 60s?
2: Yes, I do. Um, If, well, let me put it this way. Our survival and our success going forward really lies with young people. Um, I'm 78 years old, and um, I still feel good. I do a lot of different kinds of things, activities, but my time is limited. And other people in my age group, their time is limited. So we need to be as supportive of these young folks as we possibly can be. Because until the time comes that the establishment, look it, you know, let me stop right there for a minute but and go back to the fact that I'm supposed to be speaking in Nigeria this weekend, uh, uh, but I won't be able to go because of a, a surgery I had to have. Um, I was going to talk about democracy but we don't really have a democracy here in the United States. We talk about it, but we don't have one. And they don't have one in Nigeria. But some points that could lead to a democracy, we should not have 1% of the population having the economic value of the of at least 90% of the rest of us. That's that's no democracy. These people buy and sell elections as they will, and one of the reasons we can't get anything through Congress is because they see it as opposed to their wish. But if the uh, we allow these young people to begin to organize, and we can do it one district at a time, And if they see it coming, they will begin to change. Nothing will be given to us. We have to demand it. And if we don't demand it, we're not going to get it. And I see these young people now are beginning to demand some forms of equality, hopefully in social and economic development, and particularly in education. And if we can get that and support them in those ways, I think we'll have what we we had. And, and I, I would like to say this. Uh, Ralph Abernathy was my pastor. I was born mm-hmm. in, Demopolis, Ala- in Demopolis, Alabama. Ralph was 22 years old. And I was 12. Ralph made me, at 12 years old, superintendent of Sunday school.
0: Mm. And
2: that was a big deal. Right. But he knew that I was diligent and that I would carry it through and I would do what I said I was going to do. And wow. all of the older people. Like Papa Joe, who was probably in his 80s at the time, applauded the fact that he made me that, superintendent of Sunday school. That was a big deal, and it's still a big deal. It sure is.
1: Which church is that? Which church were you made superintendent? I was a
2: member of Eastern Star Baptist Church in Demopolis, Alabama. Okay. When
1: we talk about Alabama and churches, we can't help but think about the 16th Street
2: Church. Yeah. Can you tell the audience a little bit about that church? Uh, I really cannot. Um,
0: All right.
2: I know that All right. uh, Ralph left Demopolis and went to Montgomery, and um, he went to further his education because he had just gotten out of the service, and I did not reconnect with him until after 1955 when I graduated from high school in Boston.
1: Right, right. Well, yeah, um, right.
2: the Montgomery Church was the church where the poor
1: little girls. I remember. And girls were killed. Right. Right, and what what precipitated that murder, that bombing, was what you just said, children like yourself being appointed as leaders because uh, Martin Luther King had the children's march. And it yep. was very successful. And in retaliation for that successful march, they bombed. Church and that
2: is also correct. (laughs) So, but I don't know the mm -hmm. details or ins Mm or outs about it. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I knew at the time that it raised my ire, but uh, I can't give you the historical facts uh, based on that.
1: Well, you are definitely a part of history, and we are honored to have you on our show. I didn't know exactly who I would would be um, interviewing. But this is a historical interview. I'm so appreciative of the knowledge and everything that you've been doing and I you know, we commend your work and we hope that you recover soon as you can go to Nigeria and continue. Well to thank spread. you
2: very much. There is a gentleman uh by the name of uh Gary Loster, Loster who is going in my stead and uh he is an outstanding human being, uh has accomplished so much in his life. But uh he's going over there in my stead to uh speak to the, the people. And I'm going to try and get your information from Donald Brown. I hope he has it. Uh so because so that we can be in touch further. And I really appreciate this opportunity and I thank all of you for listening and for your having me on your program. Wonderful. And we
1: wanna invite you to come to New York to the T V studio because we want to broadcast you in New York and make sure that everyone hears your story, and we want to share right. it, not just in Black History Month, but all year round. So you have a standing open, um, invitation in New York City, and we will connect after we get off the air.
2: Well, thank you so much, and uh, please uh, be in touch. All righty. Okay. Thank you, and I want to thank, you thank so audience.
1: Much. All right.
2: Have a wonderful week. Have a good day.
1: Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. And all you listeners who were too shy to join in on the conversation, thank you for listening. You can listen to the shows on www.blackhistoryblog.com, dot com that's blo dot com and www.blackhistoryuniversity black history university on iTunes. Thanks again. We'll be on be on again at three p m. Thank you, Mama, Grandma, Ellen, from ninety point five broadcast in East Harlem, East
5: is New York, New
1: York, and Brooklyn. <laughs>
5: Thank, Thank you again York and Brooklyn. Okay, Bye-bye. have a blessed weekend.